Hi, I'm Sylvain Berthelot, and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. My guest today is Bianca Sims, and we're going to talk about Bianca's daughter, Lotta, and Rett syndrome. Hi, Bianca. Very Hello. nice to have you on the podcast. How are you? I'm fine. Thanks for asking me. Uh, so, as you know, I like starting with a song. So, would you be able to tell me which song you've selected and why? I can. And um, so, there's a series of songs that she listens to. She listens to a lot of songs on repeat. So, when she was very small, she listened to um, something called Kids TV 123, which is just a guy on a guitar singing about very simple things like colours and triangles and the planets. Um, and then there was one song in there that reminds me of her, um, which is just called, I think it's just called Simple Song. Um, and it's really sweet. And it just goes like, hello, hello, please listen to my song. Tap your feet. You can dance if you want. I'd be very happy if you sang along. It's a very, 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 very easy little song, and it goes la la la, la 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 la, and then so on. So Amazing. it just is kind of uh, reflective of her character, which is she has a really like gentle energy around her, and very inviting. If you are able to come down to her level, okay. <laughs> oh, sounds sounds very nice. Yeah. Uh, you said that she so Lotta, uh listens to music in repeat. You said. Oh my god, on repeat. So once we uh, got past the kids TV phase where we had everything on repeat for quite some years, we thought we'd really cracked it when she moved on to Nora Jones. I think she was about four, but she's still listening to Nora Jones albums one and two, not three. Um, on repeat. Loves it, is really happy when that comes on and she gets as much pleasure out of it, I think, every single time as the first time she heard it. Amazing. <laughs> well, and do, do you have any idea why? I have absolutely no idea why. I mean, it's um, it was so much better. It could have been anything. It could have been like thrash metal or <laughs> something kind of fairly awful. So now because we've listened to that song, I think probably more than Nora Jones has listened to her own songs. It's kind of like part of our DNA. So it, it's, I've been through many feelings about all of those songs because it used to drive me insane. Um, but now it just, I don't even hear it. And then also I associate it with her actually just being relaxed because she needs it how it is. So, it, I mean, it, she used to need it when she was in discomfort, put on, it would calm her down. And I think it actually just helps her to regulate yeah, yeah, like a like music blanket almost. Like a music blanket, exactly. So, I mean, there was a great book that one of my friends put me onto that I didn't read because it was really honestly too boring. Um, but it was called The Brain on Music, and it just talks about the you know the neurology of music and music lights up your entire brain and all the neural networks go on fire. So, it's obviously integral, and what why do people like music? Well, it just makes them feel good. <laughs> So, and it expresses something that maybe you can't verbalise. So obviously she's non-verbal, um, so she's able to find solace, I guess, as we all do, 
in that. Uh, so that was one of the questions I was about to ask, actually. How does Rett syndrome present itself with Lotta? Well, with Lotta and, you know, with lots of girls, it follows a similar trajectory with all girls, kind of. So she was, you know, normal birth and it was all fairly normal and she was progressing as normal. And then little things were not happening in the order that they should or she would reach milestones but then seem to go backwards and then go forwards so um and then eventually around 16 months she had actually just lost all of her skills so she just sat and she was very vacant she was able to crawl and she was pulling herself to stand and she was cruising she was holding things she was starting to babble and then over time that all of those things were lost. And then actually what would happen was actually infinitesimal things, even just like an expression actually would come back. And then you realize that actually that had been lost, it would come back and then it would leave again. So it's been a really odd cycle, but so that's how it presents first of all, and what started us looking for a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think she was diagnosed at two and a half. And it's done by blood test and then it's a you know it's a deletion on a gene it's a kind of big master gene so it controls all the autonomic systems so everything that we don't have to think about heart rate digestion breathing it doesn't function properly okay how was it getting the diagnosis <laughs> well it was really long <laughs> we had a, a quite a long time getting it here is quite a long time in you know in some ways to wait uh the actual day of the diagnosis was well it was just surreal so um i actually started laughing when we were given the diagnosis and i talk about this actually a lot as there's a way to give a diagnosis which is a good way and there's a way to give a diagnosis that is not so good but when i started laughing because it just all seemed completely ridiculous to me um the seriousness of it, it was, it was too big. But <laughs> the neurologist really wanted to impress upon me that it was very serious and that I should take it very seriously, which of course I was, but it was, it's too, it was overwhelming, so too much to take in. So when we actually got home, I remember my legs going from underneath me and then just all I can remember is like my face being buried in the carpet. And I can remember the carpet, the feel of the carpet on my face and this awful noise coming out. And then in my head, my little voice, whatever that little voice is that you have, was just telling me to just get up off the carpet in case I never did again. So <laughs> I just gathered myself all back up and then we carried on because it was just the day. You know, it was, you still got to get up and you still got to do your things. So everything had changed, but nothing had changed. So she was still our daughter and we still needed to feed her. We still need to take her out. We still need to go to family and do all the things that you do with a child. Um, but everything was different. Yeah. And at that time, was she walking or I think so you said she started half, walking? I think she had stopped walking. She's probably stopped okay. walking around 16 months. She was still okay. aided when she was walking or she was taking a few steps by herself. So we walked around with her, I don't know, she was still walking with me. And mm -hmm. actually, if I think about it, during lockdown, so maybe she was nine. I mean, so badly. 
but she was doing it. So we used to take her out and walk with her. So we mm-hmm. would support her from behind um, okay. until we actually physically couldn't do that anymore because there's only so long that you can do that yeah. until actually I just remember not being able to stand up straight in the park one day and then that was the end of doing it every day. So, yeah. yeah. So now how uh, mobile is she? She's, she's in a wheelchair, so she's okay. not independently mobile, but she's wheelable. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so she can go wherever there's a flat road or wherever we go if we've got loads of energy for no flat road. Which where we live is not that easy, actually. Which is where we live. There's, not, there's not that, that many easy. flat roads. No, there's yeah. not, actually. And we used to live in London, and I really miss pavements. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know how to, to really ask a question like this, but how do you communicate with Lotta? How do you know how she feels? Um, I think it's it's such a difficult question to answer, but I think, you know, you, you have children yourself and so you've had been through the baby stage. So when you have a baby, you communicate with them, but it's not through words. So I think what we're doing is that we're feeling and we're listening. So she makes sounds. We have to interpret what those sounds are mixed with the time of day it is, what's going on around us. And if it's too noisy, if it's too hot, is it this? So we have to go through a sort of series of it could be this, it could be that. And probably now we're pretty much more tuned into what it is. So it's a bit more peaceful than it used to be. I mean, it did have me in a panic for many years. And also it was really difficult as well at first, I think, because once we had the diagnosis, the the actual diagnosis was, was almost terrible to get. It wasn't actually helpful in itself. It was pretty devastating because actually what it did was just filled me with fear. So I was no longer feeling what I was supposed to feel or looking at what I was supposed to look at. I was actually just terrified and filled with a projection of what might be or, um, yeah, I didn't know what was going on. I had no, I wasn't acting rationally or sensibly or even intuitively. I was just in a frantic mess. So now it's different because you learn to trust yourself along the way i suppose we had to like relearn what we already knew okay so i think we're communicating it is like having a newborn baby she's like having a newborn baby in every respect actually so we feed her we feed her orally like by hands so that takes about an hour sometimes you know we've had to develop a lot of patience yeah and she also has a feeding tube so that is for um water because she can't swallow water okay. <clears throat> going on to her lungs i think most girls with Rett syndrome have a feeding tube for one reason or another for, even if it's just for medicine and convenience or because mm-hmm. low lots of girls struggle with weight gain they can't put on weight or conversely there's too much weight and that's partly to do with the medications they're on okay. um, or the lack of mobility i mean it's different in lots of different girls so it presents lots of different ways So yeah, the communication is difficult and actually at the same time, quite easy. Okay. <laughs> as long as you're tuned into the right thing. So, yeah, you know, I think actually, even in that terms, it's left me quite wide open as a person not walking around because 
I don't know how it was before, but I don't know, if, and I don't know how you were when you became a parent. But all of a sudden, you can hear screaming children in a completely different way. You you feel that, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. I still feel a lot of things that are going on around me that that would be good to tune out. Yeah, and I can imagine. So remembering how uh, when our girls were a baby, like if you pay attention, if you're like you said in tune, then then you react automatically almost yes. but it's when a lot of things happen around you that then your your child can get frustrated because they have to like repeat themselves in a way even when they're not talking yeah yeah well that's it i mean the, the first few years of parenting are really intuitive aren't they so yeah. um and she keeps us there so she keeps us in that space and it is really difficult because most of the world is not operating like that. In fact, most of the world is not operating in any way that she's operating. So you have to act from, your, I guess, your heart as opposed to your head, but we'll put the two together in a way. So even the concept of she doesn't walk, she doesn't speak, she doesn't do, she's not a doing person. She's a being person. Mm -hmm. So we live in a doing world and we live in not an introverted world for the most part, we live in an extroverted doing world and she's an introverted being person. So it completely at odds with the, re the way that the rest of the world for the most part runs, which is quite, it's quite tricky to um, bounce between those two things in social situations or just even in my own family because I've got two other walking, talking, running around, dancing, singing, skateboarding, rollerboating kids full of energy and I mean you know we joke I've got one who sits still and doesn't say anything and the other one who can't sit still and can't stop talking yeah <laughs> so. okay <laughs> yeah so it's striking a balance uh how uh, I wanted to ask actually how does it impact the family well it, I mean in every way so and I guess that all family dynamics are the same largely it's just so incredibly limiting it's physically limiting what we can achieve in a day and where we can go and what we can do and how she can be included and not just around and sitting is, I mean, incredibly limited. So it's, and she just takes so long to get ready to feed. So everything is so slow. Um, so it's, it, it limits what we can do with the other kids. I mean, it impacts the family differently also at every single stage. So, you know, even just over a diagnosis, everyone in the family reacts differently. Mm -hmm. So there's all of those feelings to unpack over the years of how people can accept that kind of a diagnosis and their reaction to it and, and the bad feelings that it causes, which it did cause a lot of bad feeling. It was really difficult for everyone, actually. Yeah. And then with my own family, like the, the two little ones, they're younger than Lotta, so she was the first. So that's quite a different situation, for instance, to a family like mine who has the disabled sibling as the youngest. So I was quite jealous when I had a friend who had two old boys and the, the girl with Rett syndrome was the younger one. So I was like, look at that. They're like reading to her. They like pick her up, oh, like, yeah. help out and all of their friends were around and she was a baby and she was very like mollycoddled and included and cuddled and so included whereas that is the oldest one 
so my other two have come up and at one point I do remember I had like three babies all in nappies no one fed themselves no one walked no one talked everyone was as dependent as each other all of them screaming for attention at the same time so that's quite a different situation so I, I guess it depends on the family but yeah mainly the, the limitations on where, what we can do physically as a family and incredibly limited yeah yeah, I, I think imagine. actually as time goes by, well, every so often I get reminded how limited we are because mostly I'm just walking around doing my day and think that's normality. Mm-hmm. And then I listen to what everyone else does in their day and I, I actually can't comprehend it. Yeah, 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 I can get that. And do you think it's evolved, like mobility in a way? Everyone talks about diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Uh, there's more awareness at least, but do you think there are things that are actually changing or not? Yes. I mean, even when, when we got her diagnosis, the first person I called was the charity. So it was set up by parents. And then I was introduced to other parents along the way. So there's a girl who was around the corner from us. I think she was maybe, lots of us three, she was 10. So seven years along. And Olivia just screamed, you know, she really just screamed constantly all the time. And and she couldn't, you know, the mum couldn't go anywhere with her because it was just an impossible task. So she was only okay. actually ever fine at home. So talking to her about her experiences and then about mine, that there was actually, there was no one to call. There were no Facebook groups. There was, mm-hmm. there was actually so little support and, there were, and parents and families were so much more isolated yeah like that so that's better actually i think you can reach out for information and at least to feel that you're not just alone in it and because i think there's a quite you know that it took me a long time to be able to relate to other parents with children Mm-hmm. I just hated yeah. everyone, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> I couldn't go to the park and listen to conversations about nappy sizes and baby groups and all the kind of boring stuff that everyone talks about because it was so simple. I just couldn't be, believe the simplicity and the ease that everybody had. And I still sometimes can't believe that. Yeah. Um, but at least when I had someone else to talk about, we could have a good moan and there was some sense of commonality and um community around it so at least you didn't just feel like you were alone and and especially to share all the negativity that is around it because it's not an easy process so that has definitely changed and then the fact that she can go to school which i was terrified of but the fact that there is a special school that she can go to and was appropriate for her and good and she enjoyed Mm-hmm. is a quite wonderful thing I think maybe 50 yeah. years ago that wasn't a thing and I think people are more aware if not you know brilliantly versed in how to approach her mm-hmm. or what to do but neither was I so yeah even with my own children I find it difficult to know what to tell them how to be because they've just grown up around her so just little things that we have a conversation sometimes I'm like you know when you get in the car you don't actually say hello to her <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. do I plug them to do that every single time and in a fake way but they're just used to her being around they're not, not mm-hmm. doing it because they're mean or because they don't love her because they really do she's just always there Yeah, she's like yeah. actually one of the most solid constants in their life so 
it's hard to demonstrate what you're supposed to do with Lotta. Some people really don't know how to be around her and some people are really fascinated by her and come straight into her space and and then that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. And you said that like people will go to her and, and interact with her and is she fine with that or she's completely fine when someone okay. is comfortable with her and actually when when someone isn't or is try <laughs> it's actually when people are not comfortable with themselves mm-hmm. is when it's really obvious so she's kind of like a she's like a living you know projection of what it means to be vulnerable she's so incredibly vulnerable and it's so visible so this is a very different thing to having an invisible disability for you know that you can't necessarily see she's in a wheelchair it's very obvious so it's actually very fascinating but anybody who is patronizing to her with squeaky voices and hello lockers, those kind of people um she just won't engage with that because it's not worth her time, but someone who's really genuinely present and there and with her, she loves that. So she's got a really interesting energy into the people she attracts. Yeah, she's she can be quite life changing for people. I can yeah. see that. Do you get any support at all from yes. like NHS or other organisations? Okay, so the NHS is one thing. So I don't have like a, I can't remember what you call it, the care component. So you have to be practically dead, I think, to receive whatever that NHS thing is. Continuing care, I don't get that. Um, But I get direct payments. Um, I have help from, I use that direct payments. I have help in the mornings and the afternoons to just, so she has like a two-to-one handling plan so i'm the other person who does the two-to-one-ness so i and i have someone at the weekend to come help me in the morning and she goes to a saturday club every two weeks which is really fantastic actually and they do all sorts of outdoor pursuits that's a new thing for me and incredibly lucky and not very common i wouldn't think um and even with all of that help what i managed to get done is the very basics okay when you say uh that you have a a, like she has a two-to-one so is it someone who comes to take her to school for example so yeah i think i have a little bit of an unusual situation because most people have carers come and go um who do maybe more of the lifting and handling i do most of the, the getting her dressed doing her personal care lifting her into the wheelchair but then other people come feed her help me make breakfast so it kind of takes two of us in the mornings about three hours to get her to school from waking up to getting to school if we're going at her pace because takes she has she's always had constipation it was one of the things that was the the worst actual um problem that we had uh, that was that, and now it's slightly better because we've got it under control, but only with a really complicated, long, arduous uh, routine every morning where we do an enema and then we wait and then we, we just it goes on and on. And we give her different kinds, we give her magnesium, we give her a bit of Mubicol, but really nothing. So it takes about an hour just to get her to do a poo in the morning and then 
get her dressed and get her in the chair. Then it takes like half an hour to 45 minutes to feed her and then do her teeth and brush her hair and then all the things, little things that need doing and then get her out and get her to school. So, you know, I just dropped her off just before I spoke to you. It was 11 o'clock. That's about normal. Yeah. And there, I think you've just, in a few seconds, explained why you can't really empathize with people who have very common issues with their children. I can empathize with it because yeah. now I can, but when it was my yeah. first daughter, I, I could not. And when I was in the depths of like despair around her diagnosis, you know, my sister had twins exactly. They were born on the Saturday. Lotta was born on the Sunday. We were in the same hospital in the bed next to each other. And then at some point, those children went off in very different directions. So I remember going into the, you know, our local park, met my sister, and just even watching my niece, who I love, obviously, but just to watch her hand reach out for a ball and put her fingers around it, I, I couldn't cope with it. I, had to, I just needed a burst into tears. I gathered myself up and I ran out of the park. Yeah, like the, the grieving process took a really long time. And actually what I did, rightly or wrongly, was I just removed myself. So we had this really um, intense time together, which was the most awful time of my life and actually one of the best times of my life. So I learned things that I think other parents, mums, fathers whatever it is I don't know if you don't spend that long around that kind of a thing you just don't learn the same thing yeah. so I like I learned to to be with another person all day <laughs> quietly doing her thing paying attention being present so is it grounding then it's quite grounding yeah yeah I mean, just the more horrible things you go through, the more you realise mm -hmm. that you're all right, that you'll be all right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. we've been through really horrible things. Honestly, I'd rather just not have gone through them and be a bit more of an like, idiot walking around. But I think it gives, like, I probably was just an idiot walking around and it actually overall connected me to things that I wouldn't have connected to or couldn't have connected to had I not had that experience. Yeah. Yeah, and you don't you don't learn that by just looking at your phone. I think that's what you're you saying. don't learn that by just looking at someone or just with the social chit chat. So it makes me not intolerant of chit chat because it has its place, and I'm very happy to talk rubbish with people. But just sometimes, yeah. I mean, now I'm better at it. But I think closer to the diagnosis, I couldn't really tolerate the chit chat too much. Yeah, uh, you mentioned medication earlier yeah. so is Lotta medicated at yeah, all but what medicated for quite um, minimally I guess okay. for what she has so I know a lot of girls with Rett syndrome there is a problem actually with over medication okay um you know there's a few specialists when I say specialists no one's really a specialist but there are a few people who are involved in the Rett syndrome world who would concur that a lot of girls are over medicated and it's partly just the way that their system is set up when you have something that's so multifaceted and complicated 
you come under a lot of different departments and each one does their own bit of medication and mm -hmm. then they can't counteract each other or produce different symptoms. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of girls who I think are over-medicated. Lotta isn't, so she has medication for seizures and she has a medication for her motility, like her gut motility, which actually, that was the most life-saving thing. Like. I went through a rack of medication, all of which I have to say were actually detrimental and awful experiences. But that one was was miraculous. That was we put it in, and two weeks later things were significantly better. And then I waited to see if that was the actual truth for about another eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And then when I thought, yeah, that's really changed my life. Actually, as in, she was not screaming every night for an hour before she did a poo and mm. she wasn't in hospital so much and she wasn't on antibiotics so much like lots of different things mm -hmm. so like had a good walk around the haze for about an hour and let that one go and that that did change my life yeah but it was really hard to get hold of um so i think the ones that are good you a lot of the time i needed to research it myself that was one of them and i also needed a you know a, a gastroenterologist who was happy to go and get it for me and do it off label mm -hmm. um which i i had but actually it's quite hard to navigate all of the systems and the nhs system in this situation most people are going in completely blind i mean it's, it's amazing to me absolutely amazing <laughs> that you go in to a hospital even now get a diagnosis like this and mm -hmm. then get asked do you want to come back in six months i mean i just i didn't even know what that meant i was like for what like what what are we coming back yeah. for what to be told yeah, yeah. what and most of the time we did all our own research so that's also massively changed you know now you can actually research for yourself so there's also i guess a problem for doctors and everything with everyone knowing everything on google but if i didn't have google and access to pubmed i wouldn't have been able to navigate this disease at all and i would have been a much worse advocate for her i wouldn't have understood what i was doing i would have not been making informed consent i still think people are not making informed consent because it's almost impossible to it's too complicated so yes the answer the short answer is she's on medication and the other answer is people with this kind of a diagnosis don't get any support or education about their child's condition. Yeah, that's terrible. We got given a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that was from the 70s or something, and it was actually a terrible thing to receive. It was not a good way. And if you think about it, you know, we get sent home with an, a normal baby, someone comes around and visits, they check if you're yeah. like coping, they check mm -hmm. if your baby's gaining weight, and someone comes into your actual house and does that yeah and there's so many there's so many other things that go with the lack of support around and education for parents around that because it's not helpful to anyone actually it really there's lack of coordination and care there's a lack of actually just no one even offered me grief counseling no, yeah. nothing just actually just nothing just here you go and um, do you want to come back i mean the answer's obviously no. Well, no. I never yeah. want to come back. <laughs> and I hear, like, you'd be surprised with, well, maybe you won't be surprised, actually, but I, I hear that a lot, 
people who get a diagnosis and there's no support, there's no explanation beyond the diagnosis, there's no mental health support. And even sometimes people getting a diagnosis that clearly affects their lifespan and they're not even asked if they have someone with them. You should always have someone with you. Like I would expect doctors to, to, to tell you you should come with accompanied because you don't know what you're going to get and because you don't, you don't know, know how you're going, going to, to react. Well, this is the thing. I think it's actually really difficult because it, there's a huge thing that, yes, doctors should be trained on how to deliver bad news. Because just the same, I mean, there's... You know, when you go into the science of it as well, if you give someone bad news, you can really hurt them with that bad news. And there's a way to deliver news that is better than others. So we had a really great paediatrician, fantastic, very optimistic, upbeat paediatrician who wrote me a very beautiful letter after she was diagnosed. So he wasn't the person to give me the diagnosis, but involved in the diagnosis. And it was the perfect example of how you should deliver bad news. So he was said, I'm so sorry to hear that that was what was confirmed. Um, but you seem like a very dynamic mum. Keep on top of the research. Things are always changing. My door is always open. If you ever want to come and see me, you can come. So, this, you know, it was a longer letter than that, but it, it ticked every single box the way that you want to hear so that it felt like I wasn't left alone that it wasn't also catastrophic, that maybe there was hope whilst you also need to be grounded in reality and not to just collapse under the weight of the diagnosis, but to just keep going as you are. So it, it was just an amazing um, letter to receive. Yeah. But there were very few people who were capable of that um, level of empathy, actually. So I don't think neurologists, maybe as a category of doctors, are the ones to deliver that news. <laughs> <laughs> But well, I'm knows? sure there are good ones uh, to do that. Of all yeah. kinds, and actually, I used to be very furious at the whole system. And then, once I'd worked it all out, I actually felt very sorry for anyone who was, you know, especially in A and E, with me coming in with my non-verbal child. You know, if I don't know what is wrong, how on earth do they know yeah. what is wrong? And and there's a very yeah. difficult point for for me and for them, because when she was screaming in pain a lot of the time and it went on for months unless I had to video a lot of that and which is a horrible thing to do anyway but just to actually prove that it was happening because when I took her there she wasn't doing that because it was intermittent but a lot and I knew there was something wrong so you know there's something wrong but even one of the doctors who I met and bless him it was a junior doctor so he was still learning on the job. I remember him checking her over and then I could hear him from the corner saying, oh, yeah, you know, she looks fine now. And I said, no, she's not fine because you've not actually sat down and observed. You need to sit and watch. Yeah. So if you'd sat and watched, you know, you can't just glance at her for two seconds and think she's okay. And also, do you think that this is her resting face? You know, her face is all over the bloody place and that's not how she actually looks. And I'm like, when do you think she looks like that because she's disabled or because she has let syndrome? That's not how she actually looks. And that is a face of pain. And then, you know, even you know, I was stuck into the psych ward at one point after I don't know how many weeks, months, I don't know what it was, a really difficult period of her being ill. 
I think we, we lived on a top floor flat at the time and so up 72 steps, the lift had broken, we were walking her up the steps, carrying her up the steps for three months I think, so I was really exhausted and she was ill, she was starting now I know with what was seizures but I didn't know at the time and she was screaming all of the time. So we had to go in and out of hospital constantly and I was in and out of A&E. And then the last one I went in and just really lost my rag and was stuck into the psych ward. And she was left on her own for two hours whilst the psychologist worked out that actually I wasn't a lunatic and that <laughs> I could go back and care for my daughter. But I was like, the whole thing is just so incredible to me that I realised that there was, what I had to become in those moments was actually quite detached from her. I had to detach myself from how she was feeling and be more robotic because otherwise you can't advocate properly yeah. but so i'm not like i sometimes her mum, but sometimes i well maybe you have to do this with all of your children you probably do so there is a similar trajectory for all children because over time you have to detach yourself that you're not living their experience for them you're there to yeah and after a while they, they start they they start being able to advocate for themselves, but yeah. you 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 have to do that for a lot, obviously. Well, it feels like you've gone through a journey, and and I mean you're still going through a journey, but I guess the other thing to say is you know that my particular journey isn't also the same as all the other mothers who've got Rett syndrome. So there's quite a, I mean you know this there's a huge difference between all of these girls. So my daughter has certain things that other yeah. girls don't have. You know, I have a friend who was, daughter was six months younger than Lotta and she was yeah. always just on ICU. There was always like, a, you know, I thought I was having dramas. This was much bigger drama. Um, so when Liz called me, <laughs> I used to just dread it really because... I didn't know what to say. She was like, so I was at house, you know, house Jess and she was just come off ICU and she had chest infections and being ventilated and all sorts of things. Um, and then she would ask me how lot it was. I'm like, oh my God, we just actually just been to the park and had quite a nice time actually. So it was, um, those things happen. And yet, you know, now the same, I've phoned Liz, but she's a massive support. She's, we're thinking about having scoliosis surgery for Lotta. Her daughter's already had it so to be able to phone someone or a few people even and know what they did where they went what they found difficult what was good what was bad what questions to ask um that's really good so we the other difficult situation we there's a, a charity around wet syndrome so and that the two charities one is like to help parents families with things that they need great and then the other charity just looks into a cure. So this year, the first, actually two girls now, I think, have been um, given gene therapy. So, and that seems to be really effective. Um, having like great results, amazing sort of miraculous results with that. What that means for us isn't clear. I don't think that will mean anything for us really in the future, but we don't know. It's like two two million per treatment and very experimental. Yeah. Well, it's been amazing talking to you, Bianca. Um, I always like finished by the finishing by the same question. What is Lotta's happy place? The place where you think she feels at peace. 
Oh my God, she feels at peace. I think probably everywhere. I mean, actually, she's um, she's she is at peace because she just is. So she's quite one to watch. If I'm sitting by her, like you know, everyone projects on their own things, and she's not always comfortable, and she. But her deep down internal workings, and this isn't every girl with Rhett, so I'm absolutely sure. But she's very at peace. She loves watching the trees. I can see her at the beach. I can see she's watching the birds go by. If you watch what she's watching, then you can't help but be present. So her happy place is outside in nature, I think. Or if there's a great atmosphere in a room at a party, um, she really is adept at picking up the atmosphere of anything. So that's her good sixth sense. So she, where is she at peace? She just actually is peace. She like embodies what it means to be peaceful. Well, amazing words to finish on. Well, thank you so much, Bianca. Like I really enjoyed the, the learning more about RET and, and yeah, it sounds like you're doing an incredible job. It's not all bad. <laughs> all right. Lovely to talk to you.